This is Bobby Curtola, and you're in tune with the times and in time with the tunes on the Red Robinson Show. Bobby Curtola, first Canadian pop singer to ever sell a million albums, first Canadian to ever have an RPM award, and the first Canadian ever to do a national jingle with pop music background, Bobby Curtola. Well, I tell you, How Red, do you feel about all that? Fantastic. We never knew at the time that it was going to work for us, starting in Thunder Bay, Ontario. They were, my late managers were songwriters, and they wanted to do something with their music, so they formed this record label, and they couldn't get that commercial sound that was happening on the radio with the people they were working with at the time. And I just had started singing at the high school sock hop, and I, I was at the right place at the right time, and they tried me out, and it worked. But what was the first one that really got off the launching pad? Because, I mean, you made a lot of records before that, but what's yeah. the one that... I guess there was a song called Don't You Sweetheart Me that started to get played across Canada. More like it wasn't a sporadic playlist uh, record. Right. But the one that did it was Fortune Teller, and you were the one that played the heck out of it out here in Vancouver. That was interesting because we did play it in Vancouver. I can remember bringing you into uh, a place in Vancouver called the Kitsch Showboat. Oh. So many people showed up. Wow. I think that's the only time a performer was ever brought in on a, in a rowboat. Because <laughs> you had to come in by sea. You couldn't get in uh, in the limo, remember? Wasn't that something? I never forget it. Everybody was panicking because these people were going crazy. And you couldn't figure out how the heck to get me on the stage. So you gave me your sweater that's and right. stuck me in the boat. And the guys were rowing me out. And I was acting nonchalant like I was a lifeguard there. Something. That was wild. And the limo was there. All those things I read about as a kid in the fan magazines and the movie magazines, because all singers and entertainers are fans, really. That's right. Was happening for me, Red. And uh, I, I got to say it straight. You know, I got to thank you for calling your friend in Seattle and your buddy in Ho Hawaii because they started to play our records. And, and Fortune Teller was going up and down on the hit parade. And in Cashbox, it was just... You made the difference. You got that well, American play thing started. That's right. But how that all started in those days, disc jockeys could pick their own records. That's right. And uh, I was programming C-Fun, and a guy called uh, Pat O'Day was programming KJR, and another man called Tom Rounds at K-Poi, K-P-O-I in Hawaii, and they started playing it, and uh, then there was some interest in Los Angeles, wasn't there? Yeah, from Delphi Records. It was a label of Richie Valens and Sam Cooke and... Quite a few of those great artists, uh, they were interested in the song and, and we did a deal and bang, all of a sudden there I was out on tour in America and I met people like your friend Dick Clark and he ended, we all ended up such great, great friends. I was on the tour and, and it was nice to see that song number one in so many of those American cities. That's My right. God. And I remember seeing you on the cover of uh, Cashbox magazine with Johnny Crawford. Remember that. Remember the picture? Your nose is gonna grow. He had that song. <laughs> Your nose is gonna grow. Johnny Crawford, of course, being uh, Mark on The Rifleman. He was and the little kid there. That's right. On that show. But Bob, with all of those uh, milestones, those benchmarks, I think a lot of uh, uh, Canadian radio stations didn't figure that we could have a, a superstar like yourself because Paul Anka preceded you, but he went to the States right away. You did not. Was that a tough decision? It's a double negative, Red, but we didn't know what not to do, if you know what yes, I mean. Yes. Because, and Paul is a very good friend of mine, and I admire his great talent. The music he's given the world is absolutely fantastic. You know, his record stands, and he's, he's a very famous, wonderful guy. But, but for us, when we had started out, it was the first time that the local jocks could get a hold of the record, the guy that was singing the record, because it was so hard to get the Americans who were touring the major cities only in those caravan of star packages. You know, the sure. smaller centers couldn't get them. Right. So here was a guy that was having records that sounded like they were coming from America, and 
showed up at the radio station saying, well, you, all of a sudden they played the heck out of us and they phoned us at home and we showed up for the dance hops and the, and the sock hops and, and, and it was our grassroots support that got us into the bigger centers. But for a lot of people that may not know, in our era back then in the late 50s, early 60s, they can see that in a movie called Coal Miner's Daughter, which is literally true because Loretta Lynn used to live across the border from Vancouver in a small town with her husband and they literally got in the car and went station to station with her records. That's how she did yeah, the same story with us. We drove around station to station. I, I, how many guys I caught when they were going off shift and we walked in with this record and, like I said, we didn't know what not to do. And they, take, they took a listen and the program directors. And that's, I think that's what was so special about that time was, as you said, you know, you created your own show. It was personality radio. Right. You were in tune with the audience. It wasn't something that, that it was. Computerized. No, it wasn't computerized or fabricated that this is going to be the trend this week. And no, you know, you were listening to the request line. You had your own following. You had the pulse on your area. That's right. And in, and in those cases, when we were starting out, when we came to Vancouver, you were the star. Maybe after I got the five or six hit records, they started to remember Bobby Curtola, but the jocks who were doing it in all of those regions and areas introduced guys like me and gals that were singing to the area, to their record hops or sock hops and their radio audience, and then it started to happen. You know, there's, a, there's another story that's never been told about the 60s, and they keep talking about the artists, but there's a real story of, about but the disc jockeys who were cultivating the market and, and were aware of what was going on and brought to the people what they were looking for. Like, that's the rest of the story, you know? It is. And it's it never really the, been told. I think that's... You gotta do a movie about that someday. <laughs> I, I was been talking to you about this, it's true. But that's the Renaissance period because we were allowed to do it. We had the freedom, it was all new, and uh, it cultivated sponsorships, therefore ratings, therefore yeah. money. Um, Today, you're right, it's computerized, it's a lot like uh, going to a McDonald's. Back in that period, though, television was having an impact. You mentioned Dick Clark, the American yeah. Bandstand. In Canada, I hosted a show with uh, a friend of mine, Fred Latrimo, out of Vancouver here, yeah. uh, called Let's Go, Music Hop. But it was also featured in major centers across the country. Were you ever on the one in Toronto? I was. I, I got to sing songs like Three Rows Over and Fortune Teller. And, and I'm trying to think, Dave Mickey did, yes. was host for, for a long time on the show, too. but. A lot of the shows I did there was with Alex Trebek, who now is a, one of the game premier game hosts. Uh, show, uh, show game host. <laughs> did I get it right? Well, whatever. How does that work out? But Alex is doing great. But back those days, he was uh, Master Ceremonies for uh, Music Hop. What do you think made the difference, too? Because you carved away for so many uh, by staying home. Anne Murray, I mean, she appeared on the Music Hop, too. That's right. Uh, with Frank Cameron up there. And I just, uh, what a voice she had. She oh, yeah. still has. She's a great talent. But that was really the blossoming of uh, Canadian content. Really? You feel, I, I'm sure you must feel that you were a part of that, responsible for a part of that. Well, you know, in those early days, Red, I couldn't figure out why. You know, after a while you get a couple of things happening and then you start working with such terrific musicians and talented singers and you start saying, why me? You know, is it, is it because I did this or that? And you know, it's really hard to figure out what makes a record sell. But right. for, for, for some of us who are so lucky to have them, I mean, it's been a blessing all my life to be able to talk about things like that. But the talent thing, it's everywhere. I, I mean, the talent is there. That's right. And, and when I went to England in the 60s with Fortune Teller, I brought back this idea of Canadian content because the English had a content law that only permitted so much foreign music into the country right. per month. And it let them develop their artists. So I brought this concept back because guys like Little Caesar and the consuls who had the original version of Sloopy Hang On, That's right. who were covered. I mean, if they would have had the break, they would have had that huge hit. They had it first. 
But guys like that were having problems. Uh, Chad Allen and the Reflections had worked with me at one tour when they came west and ended up uh, releasing Shaking All Over after. I mean, I've been there with a lot of these guys working with them. I don't, I don't take the credit for their talent or their success, but everybody was struggling to get that recognition, and I was so lucky to be getting it that I brought this idea for the content thing, and it, it, it really worked. I mean, Look it what really it did has. in England for the Beatles. Yeah. Of course, the problem is a little, uh, a little different, uh, be, being so close, the proximity to America, where we can hear American uh, stations. But I think that you were responsible a great deal for. Uh, for that period and bringing Canadian uh, artists to the fore. I know as a, a disc jockey in those days, uh, a lot of us said, well, you know, there's no material to play and how can it be as good as the British or the Americans? I think you proved that, no question. No, oh, thanks, Red. And when I look back, all of that happened then and I, and I say that in the 1980s, they're gonna have to say that it's the ageless generation because television introduced a lot of us to what the, what the young people liked with their music and it introduced the young people to what we had going on back then. So today, you said it the best of all. You know, the songs that really make it, I mean, you can say what you want, but it's still rock and roll, whether it's yeah. Bruce Strait, Springsteen singing it, whether it's Queen, whether it's That's right. the great Roy Orbison, you know, it's still rock and roll. Still rock and roll. And keep it alive, brother, because I'll tell you. Out of all of the songs, the fortune tellers, uh, the hand in hand, the don't you sweetheart me? What are what are your favorites? Indian Giver. What are what are your favorites of the ones you did? The ones you're proudest of? I have to be fortune teller because it it had the combination. It opened it opened the safe with all the treasures in it. It took us to places I never thought I'd ever see. Where'd you cut that session? In Nashville. Who was on it? Like, can you name? Can you yeah. remember? Listen to the piano, and you know it's Floyd Kramer. And if you listen to the guitar, it is Grady Martin, and those are the Anita Kerr singers singing. So I had some fantastic support. Boots Randolph was on, a, on the same session uh, and playing some of the different songs. We didn't have the sax on Fortune Teller, but on a lot of them. Bill the Justice produced. Yeah, Bill Justice produced that. Bill Justice produced Indian Giver. And the song, we, Making Love was a hit years ago, and we brought it back in the, in the late 60s, and it hit for us in Canada, too. But you'll never believe who produced that. No, who? Ray Stevens. Crazy Ray? Crazy Ray. <laughs> wonderful Ray Stevens. They have the Arab. Fantastic. Bill scared the heck out of me, though, because I walked into the session, and I had rehearsed the song to have a different feel. I walked onto the floor, and all of a sudden, they're playing, boom, 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 da, 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 da. And, they go, and the singers are going, way, you know, this. I said, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody screwed up here, and they've got a different piece of music that I haven't rehearsed, you know. The two guys that wrote most of your material, the Herden brothers, they're, they're no longer with us. How did they react to all of this? Were, they were little town people, had, had a great idea. Were they shocked when it all happened so fast? Yeah. How did they live with that? The, actually, the, they, they really were songwriters and they wanted to do something with their hobby and they were, they were straight with me, they were great with me. They took care of me and they, they let me partake in the whole package and I got involved in the business side. and and. The big thing was that they wanted to do something with this music they had written. And they had a dream. And it, at, when it, as it started to happen, they had the foresight to keep pressing in the right directions. And I think because they were so straight and so straight ahead that it started to unfold for them. But when it really started to take off, I mean, we had no idea it would work like that. No idea. Tried to do everything themselves, did they? Yeah, mostly like the record company really started in the basement. And we were mailing records. And, after work, in the middle of the night, to all the different stations and disc jockeys, and and then I, it's 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 like everything you ever read about Red, and you know, 
when it works, boy, you got a tiger yeah. by the tail. And it's and it's hard for a lot of, uh, never mind songwriters, I think uh, performers to see all this adulation and all of a sudden you take on a different persona or you think maybe you should or whatever. Yeah, it's hard to keep yourself straight. The best advice I had when I was growing up as a kid then and, and Basil, who ended up my personal manager, Basil and Dyer, the brothers, Basil had such great wisdom and as a kid going to high school, it was hard because you know you, you got these girls screaming for you, and uh, you know, and you're just a your man, you know. And at 14, and well, yeah. they were 14 and 15. I was 17. I mean, <laughs> it was right. it was hard to keep it right because on the weekend I'd be traveling to places like New Orleans or Vancouver or even Gravelberg, Saskatchewan. So I played them all, big and small. But I'd be back in school and trying to sort it out, you know. But he said this. I mean, can you? You got to understand. Right? He's trying to get it so that it sinks in. Sing, Bobby, you gotta consider yourself like a bank teller with your public. A bank teller might handle millions of dollars every day, but if he ever dare take one dollar. <laughs> That's you, a great story. Can you argue with wisdom? He's right. And you on. obviously listened to it. Yeah, I sure did. I, you know, I, my father raised me that way and my mother. You know, they said that, you know, if people are sincere and care about you, they've already been through it. I mean, if they're going to hurt you, you're going to know. And if they're not, you should try it their way because you, you probably might learn more. So I, I'm glad I did. I didn't end up messed up and screwed up. And uh, no, you, you know, didn't. I can look back red and say, nothing lasts forever, but this sure has lasted a long time. Thank you. you know? It's amazing. Really. Out of uh, all of the things that you've done, we asked about the records. Let me ask about. Is there anything that happened to you in the, in the uh, business of records, show business, where you met someone uh, that stands out in your mind, or maybe you were on a show with someone that was an unforgettable experience? Just one unforgettable Bobby Curtola experience. There was a lot of unbelievable, unforgettable experiences, you know, just... Uh, Any stand out in particular? Well, I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I think the first one was probably one of the most classic. When the record hit and I was still going to high school and all of a sudden it's number one in the city of Winnipeg and like they're, they're going crazy and I, years later we find out that the only people that outsold that record were the Beatles when they hit. That's right. But we really, I was a, just a record that caught on and it was called Hand in Hand with You and it was so hot for so long that I was on the Bob Hope show in Winnipeg. So here I'm a kid in high school and we'd, you know, the, we'd rehearse the song in the radio station, there we are, all of a sudden the Bob Hope show. And of all things, little did I realize that years later I'd be on the same label as Johnny Crawford, but The Rifleman was a guest on the show, and so was Johnny. And this was prior to us ever being on the label, you know. Bob Hope, uh, Patrice Weimer, who was a movie actress yes. then, and I, and uh, you know who else was on the show? Honeycomb, Jimmy Rogers. So there we are doing our thing, and we're, everybody gets a rehearsal, and you know how time is in a big show like that. They run out of time, and the lowest guy in the totem pole is, you know, the. We compared to all the other stars, I mean, they were superstars in our first record. So Jack Shapiro, you remember Jack? Sure. Jack Shapiro Orchestra, they just, it was showtime and everything got wrapped up in the dressing room, we're going over the song. It wasn't so bad because those days with three chords, right? Or right. four, maybe. Four. So we're in the dressing room going over the song and we're gonna do it, we're okay. We go on stage, Red, the crowd went crazy. Like crazy, I, and you know, in arena, you could already see yeah. because of the lights. We had more people out of our, outside our dressing room door than Bob Hope for a while. And he, he come over, Bob will never forget, he was so nice to me, I've worked with him nice since. Man. 
But the story is the guards in front of the door and my mother and father naturally come to see their son. They right. can't believe this. And she's a little squirt, my mom, you know. She's at the guard's door and she goes, excuse me, but uh, Bob, that's, Bobby told us my son, I'd like to get in the dressing room with him. And he looks, he, he, he looks down at my mother and he says, you mean you're his mother? So she says, if you're his mother, then I'm his father. Back of the line, lady. Oh. <laughs> I had to go up there and get her. I wonder where she got to. That tells you you've arrived. And Bob came back. He's always kidding me about that. Talking about rock and roll, one of the most interesting experiences you've told me was you playing Vegas and a man in the audience in oh. disguise. Oh. How about the devil in disguise? I, Not the devil, but yeah, the singer in yeah. disguise. Nobody knew. And I looked. I couldn't believe it. I, could, I thought it was, and then I didn't. I, you know you can't tell? Yeah. It was Elvis. I was in the lounge at the Desert Inn. And he came in, and I saw the bodyguards. Like, he came in with two gorgeous-looking women. He's wearing a, he's wearing a brown three-piece suit, red hair. And this covers the birds. Red hair? Red hair. But, you know, he, he always had good taste. And the glasses, yeah. <laughs> I should have taken a picture. You know, I said, why didn't I have a camera? Right. And I wasn't sure. You know me, I walk yeah. in the crowd. But I saw the bodyguards, and it started to make sense. Because Bill Porter, who recorded all of our stuff in Nashville, did almost all of his sessions. And That's I, right. So I'm looking, and I'm looking. I couldn't tell. And then I walks over to take a closer look, and he gave me the nod. He went, he went you, well, you know. Yeah. When something's happening, yeah, yeah, you know. So I got the nun. I lo I couldn't believe it was him. I, I couldn't believe it was him, and he was out making the rounds, like you know. So I, I said thank you, and I, it was great. He's something. He was something. Oh, I, yeah. I met him once in the early days when he was coming out of the, the studio, the small studio in Nashville. It was a quick one, but he was in there recording, and we were going in the next shift, and uh, he gave us all so much and so much inspiration. Well, I think. But you that did the really, same. that really happened. I mean. And he did show up with something. Well, I think you inspired a lot of Canadian artists to go ahead. And everything has to have a beginning, and I think you were the pioneer in this country. Bob, thank you for your hey, time. Red, Red, for, you're the pioneer. I mean, thanks for starting that for me, that record in America. It, would, it probably never would have got across the border if you didn't give it that little... Little shove? <laughs> yeah, okay. thanks. Thank you, Bob.